0: Welcome to the American Research Center in Egypt's podcast. Through this podcast program, we will present the latest findings and host engaging discussions about fascinating topics in Egyptian cultural heritage. Joining us will be world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, Islamic, Coptic, and modern Egyptian history, archaeology, and much more. If there are topics you would like to suggest for this program, please email us at podcast at arce.org. If you enjoy the work of the American Research Center in Egypt, you can find out more about our other programs and activities at rc.org. You can also support our work by signing up for our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support our operations and projects. Today's podcast will be talking about King Tutankhamun's tomb and treasures, featuring Dr. Fatma Ismail, RCUS Director of Outreach and Programs, and our guest, Distinguished University Professor Salima Ikram, Professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. We hope you enjoy this episode, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are excited to have with us today
1: Professor Salima Ikram. She's Distinguished Professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. She has worked as an archaeologist in Egypt since 1986. Professor Ikram has published extensively in both scholarly and popular venues for adults and children on diverse subject matters, ranging from traditional Egyptological subjects to zoo archaeological topics. Currently, her research focuses on the changing climate of Egypt, as reflected in the fauna relying on evidence derived from pictural, textual, archaeological and climatological evidence, changing food sources and eating habits, rock art and funerary customs. Welcome, Professor Ikram.
2: Thank you so much, Fatma, thank you for inviting me to this series.
1: Of course, the fascination with King Tutankhamun stems from the rich tomb where his mummy was found among hundreds of other objects in 1922. As an academic, what do you think is the significance of its discovery and do you think the tomb and its content have been studied enough?
2: Well, I think it's obviously one of the most exciting finds in Egyptology and it is significant, not only to Egyptologists, but also to the general public because again and again, Tutankhamun manages to sort of stir up enthusiasm and fire interest in ancient Egypt and all things Egyptian um, and for us of course as Egyptologists it is extremely interesting because we have a almost intact group of artifacts that you come from a tomb, single tomb and so using these we can learn about religious beliefs, funerary customs in particular at the time, as well as Looking at all of these artifacts, we can better understand um, technologies that were used, um, economic importance of trade and exchange because of the various materials used to create these marvelous works of art and daily life usage from Tutankhamun's tomb. So I think there is still a huge amount that can be done. With the goods that were in the tomb. And as we are seeing more and more, even the tomb itself does not seem to have yielded up all of its secrets yet. Let's start with the mummy. Uh,
1: as a world expert on mummies and mummifications, can you summarize for us the recent studies done on the mummy of the boy king? I, I think the mummy was in relatively good shape. What does it tell us about his life and death? What's unique about the mum- his mummification? Uh, beside the erect phallus, of course, but I hope you can
2: talk about it as well. Um, well, I have to say um, there have been quite a lot of studies recently. Well, actually, not that many. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> when Carter discovered the mummy, it was intact, but it was so covered with highly resinous, glutinous black material that in fact it was very firmly stuck to the coffin and to its, many of its bandages and all of the funerary jewelry was really clinging to the body. So Carter had the unenviable task of unwrapping Tutankhamun because of course at that time, it would not have been possible to have taken this out in his coffins, out of the tomb and to an X-ray machine in Cairo, um, so what he had to do was do what was traditional at that time period, which was to try and release the king from his coffin um, and undo his bandages in order to study the mummy. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because this glutinous, black, sticky material was so thick and so, um, so sticky, uh, he wound up, they wound up having to actually cut up to some extent poor Tutankhamun during the course of investigations, but they did take uh, good notes and photographs, Burton took amazing pictures throughout of this whole event or series of events rather. So unfortunately Tutankhamun was not in very good shape by the end of it and he probably wasn't in brilliant shape at the start of it because he was really just covered up with black goo. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a combination of resinous material so recently so after Carter worked on releasing it uh, Derry and Saleh Hamdi Bey, Douglas Derry and Saleh Hamdi Bey uh, worked on looking at the mummy and um, analyzing it then Derry did some further work and then in the 1960s um, Harris and his team uh, uh, actually Harrison looked at it and Harris has also looked at it and then uh, subsequently the Hawass team has done CT scanning as well as DNA analyses, and I think there was perhaps some blood work done as well in the 70s or so. So there have been little pockets of attention paid to the body of the king, and, he, and, and they have all yielded different results, some of which have been contested in the medical press as well as the Egyptological press. So. As with anybody, by studying the bones or the, the remains, one can learn about Tutankhamen and by studying the mummification, we can learn more about religious beliefs. And what is interesting is that Tutankhamen's a very complicated mummy because of this, well, okay, let me just start. He was mummified in a very curious way and several anomalies are apparent if we compare his mummification to that of the kings, apart from Akhenaten, just preceding him as well as those that followed. So the 18th and dynasty rulers are not really buried the way Tutankhamun was, or mummified the way he was. There, is, there are two levels of resin in his cranium. The arm position is, well, I suppose, in a way for the 18th dynasty, they actually were not very firm about where they put their arms. But the location of the evisceration cut is odd the position of the penis is odd. The fact that we can't seem to find his heart is odd. Now there some of his ribs are missing, but this could have been something that happened more rec- in recent history, where we think that robbers might have gotten in or to remove some of his ribs. And the huge amount of resins and oils used in the embalming is also an anomaly. You don't really see anything like that, so much, much later. So it is, Tutankhamun's mummification is, is very unusual and as a result, of course, people have spilled a lot of ink saying, oh, he was mummified in this terrible way because he died far away from Egypt, mm-hmm. um, because either he was, you know, fighting with someone, he was on campaign, or he was hunting and a hippopotamus oh. kicked him oh. or a horse kicked him or various mm-hmm. other, you know, and then before that, to the head. People blow to the head because part of his parietal was knocked in and then subsequently we have learned that actually as far as we can tell the blow to the head was mishandling either by the embalmers or subsequent to that and so there was no real blow to the head the ribs is a questionable thing but they seem to have been cut out to release some of the jewelry on his body which was present and documented by Carter, so it happened subsequently, perhaps during the Second World War when we have events such as these taking place.
1: There's a mention of uh, him suffering from malaria as well, is that correct? Mm -hmm.
2: So um, with the Hawass and, and his group, they did all these CT scans and analyses and they found that Tutankhamun had malaria, but did not die because of this. They did notice a fracture in his femur, in his leg, upper leg, thigh really. And some people conjectured this might have been the cause of death because he might have broken this and had septicemia and then died. But Mm -hmm. physical anthropologists as well as medical doctors were not all in accord with this interpretation. So again, they're really, despite all of this modern um, technology that we have and medical knowledge, we still don't really know what Tutankhamun's cause of death was and he could have simply died of the flu, which for all of us nowadays is much more of a reality than before.
1: True. So can we at least say uh, it was a culmination of several issues that led to his death rather than one main cause?
2: I frankly don't think we can say anything for sure at this point. Yeah. I don't think there's sufficient evidence. But what we can say is that his mummification was very odd um, because the p- position of his embalming incision, in his, it goes from his navel um, to his hip. That is not something you see during these, the New Kingdom. Also, the amount of this black resinous material, you don't see the erect penis again. Absence is, of the heart. Um, I think
1: you had an interesting theory about this with um, linking him to uh, Osiris. We know that according to tradition, the deceased is usually associated with God Osiris, but more so with King Tutankhamun. His image is represented uh, very clearly um, on the burial chamber as God Osiris. and Maybe the absence of the heart is also
2: something related to the um, mystery of Osiris. Well, certainly, I did propose a theory that Tutankhamun was, because as you know, the Amana period before that had sort of jumbled up religious beliefs, and maybe Tutankhamun was moving towards a more traditional. So basically, all of these elements seem to be that Tutankhamun really was being, during his life, he was a living Horus to sort of kick back to the Amana heresies. And in his death, he was very literally Osiris with his headdress. Um, And in fact, you know, Carter commented on this as well. He had this headdress that was reminiscent of that of Osiris. He had an erect penis, which we see with Osiris. He was colored all black, um, which is identifying Osiris and Osiris with the land of Egypt because the soil is so fertile that if you even now go down and take up the Nile soil, it is this extraordinarily rich, fertile, black soil. So here we have the mummification seemingly um, turning Tutankhamun very literally into the god Osiris to rule in the afterlife, just as Horus, he ruled in this world.
1: So intentionally um, making a statement that everything is going back to normal, to pre-Achinaten's time. Um, so the burial anomalies and the mummy, and as the and the object, as we'll discuss later, seems to be intentional.
2: I, I think that it was definitely a, intentional, and it's not even necessarily pre What it does is pre plus moving forward, because a lot of what you see going on there is something that then contributes to how Egyptian religion evolves throughout the Ramesside period and. Um, it is more traditional, certainly, but and more secure, but you see much more interconnection and interweaving of deities as well as the king and these divinities.
0: You are listening to the official podcast of the American Research Center in Egypt. If you need any information about our operations, please go to rc.org. Now we will go back to our episode with Professor Salima Ikram.
1: Many curious items exist among King Tutankhamun's treasures. Uh, what was the significance of the many walking sticks uh, found in his tomb, for example? There are over 130 of them.
2: Yes, um, Andre Beltmeyer and I are working on these. And we have a lovely team assembled where we are hoping to published not just the sticks, but comparanda as well as um, uh, sort of the idea of what sticks and staves mean to the ancient Egyptians, and thanks to the RC for an AEF grant to help do this. But some people say that all of these sticks point to the fact that Tutankhamun had problems with his legs. So we looked at the bases of the sticks very carefully, and actually have not found anything conclusive to point to the fact that they were used to such an extent that as by someone who needed them as a support. And I have had a series of unfortunate accidents with my limbs. So I have been using a walking stick for some time and I could also use my walking stick and the wear patterns and compare them to what Tutankhamun had and to other people's walking sticks And it does not really seem that for the most part that they were used. But of course, the ones in his tomb had many of them, most of them, had a ceremonial purpose as well. So he would have used them in ritual context, so that would mean there wouldn't be much use. The ones that would have been that seem to have been used for daily life do not really display a huge amount of wear pattern. Several of them, all of the sticks, in fact, have um, evidence of animals like little insects eating bits and pieces and general deterioration more than they do of actual use patterning. So I think that if one starts probing deeply, which is what our project is doing, into sticks and royal tombs, and in fact, private tombs as well, more non-royal tombs, we we do have a large numbers of sticks found in tombs such as that of Tutankhamun, other royalty, uh, or royal associates like Yuya and Tuya, but non-royal individuals as well, not of course in the same number, um, and sometimes by young people. So it seems more that they have a ritual purpose, I hate to say this, but it's probably Mm -hmm. true, not as well as a, you know, something, a role to play in terms of accessories, rather than, I am going to lean on this stick because I can't walk.
1: Yes, especially with the ones that the curved ends and representations of enemies to them. They
2: kind oh my of God,
1: those are so yeah, clearly say they're not functional, they're more symbolic.
2: Uh, Andre and I have been trying to do all kinds of racco experiments to see how one would use those, <laughs> if are going to ever use them. How about the different kinds of food uh, that were found in this tomb? Oh, something so dear to my heart. This is something (laughs) that my dissertation was about. (laughs) Yeah, no, Tutankhamun was a growing boy and there were lots and lots of different kinds of food found in his tomb. So we have red and white wine, no beer, strangely. um, And we have huge amounts of Dom palm nuts, which even now children in Egypt love to eat or you crush up and you turn them into a juice i love it personally <laughs> exactly um were nab berries which are jujubes uh, as they're called by, in english colloquially um raisins dates lots of different kinds of bread and most of all meat he had a uh, poultry and uh beef uh so you know ribs and uh leg joints and all of these things were there so uh, you can tell us Growing boy needed to be nourished in the hereafter.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite artifact among his treasures? Oh,
2: my God. That's so <laughs> difficult. <answer. laughs> I think one of my favorite things is the Anubis on the shrine, which was wow. found uh, when it was found. Anubis was covered up in linen cloth um, like a cape. So he looked yeah. like a super Anubis. It's <laughs> uh, iconic very iconic and I mean of course it's the whole idea of wrapping things to make them more sacred as well as to protect them but he really does does look as he's going to be um a superhero and he is exquisite but I mean there, there are also some charming things like Tutankhamen's gloves or his underwear that <laughs> are so nice because one has a sense of this sort of personal relationship almost with this boy because of the underwear and some of his shoes and gloves you can see that they're different in size so you can see that they've been kept and and sort of stored since he was little till he grew up and it's like nowadays people keep the first pair of booties worn by their children the little shoes and then sometimes they bronze them but it was the same thing because Tutankhamun's clothes and chairs since he was a baby a young boy had been kept and then they were put into the tomb for him, which is just so sweet.
1: So charming.
2: I love that he had
1: a, a lock of hair from his uh, grandmother in his tomb. Isn't that Victorian? <laughs> so
2: Victorian.
1: <laughs> the media, uh, as you mentioned before, has latched on to a theory about there being hidden additional chambers in Tutankhamun's tomb. Uh, what is the latest news on this topic? And
2: what do you think of this theory? Well, this is a very amazing thing. Uh, it seems in some images that it is a possibility that there is a door, but when people have done, done sort of magnetometry and various scans, this is not always proven to be the case. I think that until all of the raw data is released to people who can actually run this and look at it, um, people on the outside cannot really come to any decision. Uh, Certainly some groups say there is absolutely something behind that wall, whilst others are absolutely equally sure that there is nothing. As I don't have access to the data or the software that would interpret or um, image it, I really couldn't possibly comment, though I would love to think that there is something delicious and wonderful behind that wall.
1: Yeah, we we always like to look uh, forward for something, especially if it's connected with uh, King Tutankhamun. It would be fascinating to discover anything uh, in addition to what we already know. We did find a beautiful and almost intact tomb of the third intermediate period king Puzasenes, the first Atenis, uh, dubbed the Silver King. Unfortunately, it was discovered <laughs> at the wrong time, at the start of the Second World War and it didn't receive much attention due to the developing conflict. Um, Do you think we are likely to find another burial as rich as that of the golden or silver kings?
2: It was a great shame that the Tanite burials were found during the Second World War because they are filled with extraordinary objects, some of which were in fact taken by the priests of the Amun and the Tanite kings from royal burials of the theban kings of the 18th 19th and 20th dynasties and then reused or melted down and reappropriated um, i think that given the fact that we still have tombs of high priests queens and even kings that have yet to be discovered it is not outside the bonds of bounds of possibility that we will find something intact and as exciting as the tomb of Tutankhamun, perhaps even in the Valley of the Kings of the West Valley, because there still is a lot to be discovered. And it is extraordinary how in Egypt, which is a magical place, you completely unexpectedly come upon something just by the turn of a trowel.
1: Or a fall of a donkey.
2: The fall of the donkey, the stumble of the horse, <laughs> the person who trips and falls into a shaft, or let's not forget the goat that was grazing <laughs> in the bare hills of the Theban necropolis.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Ikram,
0: for a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the RC podcast. And a thank you as well to our guest, Distinguished Professor Salima Ikram. Please join us for our next podcast episode, where we will be continuing our series on King Tutankhamun with our guest, Professor Nozomu Kawai of Kanazawa University in Japan, to talk about King Tutankhamun's reign. Thank you for listening. And if you need any information about our podcast or RC in general, please visit our website at www.rc.org for more information. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.